0: Welcome to our weekly Bible study at Glendale Baptist Church. We are continuing our studies through the book of Revelation. And in our last session, uh, we looked at the uh, the, fourth, uh, the fourth trumpet. And so today I want to pick up in verse 13. And there are two things in, in, in chapter 8. But there are two things or two directions that we want to go. The first thing is we will give an overview of, Of the three woes that are spoken of in chapter 8 verse 13 and then the second thing we'll do and that's uh, so it'll be a five point overview on the woes and uh, the second thing that we'll do is look at the first woe which corresponds to the fifth trumpet so let's begin by reading verse uh, chapter 8 verse 13 in the book of Revelation Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So in the first four trumpets, it brought about, um, uh, it, it spoke of things that would take place within uh, these the spheres surrounding and supporting human life. What we'll see that unfolds with the final three trumpets, and in particular, or especially uh, in conjunction with the wolves, is that these are going to be aimed directly, as it says in verse 13, to those who dwell on the earth. So there are five things that we want to look at in relation to the... Um, this preamble that prepares us uh, for the unf- the, um, the, the, the rem- remaining trumpets. First off, notice in verse 13, the prophetic phrasing. Uh, the prophetic phrasing. And I say this because in verse 13, what... John is told is, or what he sees, he hears an, uh, an eagle crying with a loud voice overhead crying, woe, woe, woe. In prophecy, and we've addressed this before in our study of the prophets, but in prophecy there were basically two types of messages that were delivered by uh, God's designated prophets or spokesmen. They were either messages of will w-e-a-l from which we get the word wealth and in the prophecy of will the Lord is pronouncing blessings and comforts to his people the other type of prophecy was one of woe and woe was usually in conjunction with curses or punishments so the prophets spoke of was either a word of will word of promise or a word of judgment and curse so there is a prophetic backlash here, or background here. Uh, the angel, the angels, in conjunction with the remaining uh, prophets or the remaining trumpets, will be announcing, and it's very specific, messages of woe. So there is a prophetic correlation to the phrasing here. The second thing you'll notice is the threefold repetition of woe. R.C. Sproul was very helpful in talking about, uh, in his classic book, The Holiness of God. And in his exposition of Isaiah 6, with the call of Isaiah, he emphasizes that the cherubim's crying out, holy, holy, holy. His point of emphasis is that the triple repetition of a word or phrase was a way of It was in place of an exclamation point. In Hebrew writing, they did not have exclamation points or commas as we would use them in our English uh, grammar or language. So in order to emphasize a point, uh, it was emphasized by repetition. So by saying that uh, in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord it's emphasizing that aspect of his person and character. By pronouncing three woes, it's not just in conjunction with the three remaining trumpets, but it's indicating the severity of the woes that will unfold in human history. The third thing here, and it's also very helpful in understanding the phrase as it's used here because it will resurface Uh, in other portions of the book. And that's the phrase, those who dwell on the earth. There are those who have a, what we would call a dispensational interpretation of the book of Revelation. And, And I don't want to lump them necessarily together, but you have a dispensational interpretation or exegetical and expositional grid And then there are those who are also uh, literalists, who try to interpret every portion literally. And sometimes there's an overlap. And so for those who interpret this uh, from a dispensational framework, they assume that the church is no longer on earth after uh, Revelation chapter 4. So in the dispensational framework, generally, I don't know if there's been a modification in that position or not, but generally those who hold to a dispensational framework for understanding the book of Revelation would maintain that the church is no longer present after chapter 4. We're going to see why that's not true here. Uh, those, um, and so in trying to literally... Uh, take this phrase literally, they take it to mean all of those who are left after the rapture, and so every person on earth. But actually, the phrase throughout the book of Revelation, the term or the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is used in reference to non-believers. This term does not mean believers are not on the earth uh, when all of these things occur. Uh, but it does delineate or makes the distinction between the people of God as we see it in other portions of the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. He speaks of our union with Christ. So by faith, we are seated with him in heavenly places. And so that union with Christ distinguishes us from those who just dwell on the earth. So the way the way it's used here in the book of Revelation those who are who dwell on the earth is similar to the way um, the term world is used in and especially in John's gospel and in Jesus high priestly prayer he prays he, he says that we are in the world but not of the world in the same way that he was in the world but not of the world so those who dwell on the earth does not indicate that believers are not on the earth. As a matter of fact, if you look at um, the, the, the call in verse 13 where it says, uh, Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the trumpets that uh, are about to blow. Later, when that trumpet, the sixth trumpet blows, and it speaks of the things that will take place, um, it says that these things are targeted towards those who are not sealed with the name of God. And that indicates that if they are not sealed with the name of God, that means there are some who are on earth who are sealed with the name of God. So this phrase those who dwell on the earth is another way of referring to unbelievers, those who are not united by faith to Christ, those who are not sealed with the Holy Spirit, those who's, uh, who are not sealed with the name of God. And that's just a way of speaking, and it's, it's doesn't, it doesn't literally mean that uh, only the, the only people on the earth are unbelievers. I simply don't find any scriptural proof to indicate that Christians will be secretly taken from the world and human life will continue to exist. Here's the fourth thing. These woes are curses, uh, or covenant curses against fallen humanity for their rebellion against the law of God. So, that being the case, there is is a similarity with some of the imagery and the languages, uh, or the language that we see in relation to um, national Israel, or uh, even um, Egypt, the nation of Egypt. Uh, These are curses, covenant curses. So the wolves, as well as the trumpets, the events that are signified by the trumpets in conjunction with them, are covenant curses against fallen humanity. And they are still not consummate. In other words, these things occur and as difficult as they are to endure, it's still not the end. Because the ultimate end for all of those who are rebellious against, who rebel against the law of God, is eternal damnation. So these are precursors to the final consummate uh, condemnation. So here's the fifth thing, an overview on the woes. Although the three woes are announced together, here in chapter eight, verse 13, they are um, the explanation or actually the fulfillment um, of the final three trumpets. So, in other words, it's not the woes and then the trumpets. Actually, the woes are the explanation behind each of the three remaining trumpets. So, the trumpets will not only announce an event, but to punctuate. These things being judgments or acts of divine judgment, the woes, the actual announcement of woe, is in conjunction, direct conjunction with the um, with the trumpet, and together these are God's uh, temporal, preparatory acts of judgment against rebellious fallen humanity. Now that being the case, we move now to. The first woe which is in conjunction with the fifth trumpet and so I'll read verses our chapter 9 verses 1 through 12 the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fall fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit he opened the shaft of the of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like uh, the smoke of a great furnace. And um, the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the field or of the earth or any grass, plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, the people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes were to come, or are still to come. So the fifth trumpet is a good example of, of why it's important to not get lost in the imagery and uh, miss the action that's and, and miss the point that's being made. So we, we don't want to get, um, you know, the, the, the imagery is there for reason, but we don't want to get so lost in the imagery and actually miss the action behind the imagery and the point that's being conveyed and communicated. So there are five things that we'll focus on Uh, In conjunction with this fifth trumpet And this first woe The first thing John sees a star From heaven He sees a star fall from heaven But understand uh, Notice that the star Is personified So even though he sees a star uh, It says in verse um, In verse um, Yeah verse 1 It says about the star He was given the key to the, uh, the shaft of the bottomless pit. So this star is not so much a heavenly body as much as it is a spirit or person. It's personhood ascribed to the star. And it actually corresponds to something that we see in Isaiah, and I think it's a similar thing that's or the same personality is being described in Isaiah. Chapter 14, and we'll look at verses 12 through uh, 17. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. And it says, uh, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, and who did not let his prisoners go home? Now, what's described here is, uh, it's seen in conjunction with the fall of Babylon, but it's also a description of the fall of Satan. And so, the language and the imagery is very similar. So this is not describing in this uh, sixth trumpet and the first of the woes. This is not describing an actual a meteor. So we don't look to the heavens for this one to happen. But actually, what's being described is God unleashing Satan. As a matter of fact, look in verse eleven. Uh, in verse eleven, look at the way this this star who fell, who was who was released from the bottomless pit how it's described in in verse 11. It says, And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. So what is being described is Satan. So the first thing to see is the fallen star is not a cosmic event it's a spiritual event and so the imagery is not what falls from the sky the imagery is what is being released in the earth the point of the imagery is what is being released in the earth and what is being released in the earth is Satan and a host of demons the second thing to note: this fallen star is given authority by God, to release locusts from the bottomless pit. So that's in in the very first thing that we're we're told is that the angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star falling from heaven to earth and he was given the key. The the one, the, the star, which means Satan. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And, um, and the sun and the, and the air were darkened with uh, the smoke from the shaft. So, this, so, so Satan, what's being described, is Satan is being given the authority to release from the bottomless pit locusts. And again, locus is being used symbolically and or metaphorically. The locus as a physical image obviously is in conjunction, as we mentioned before, with the plagues against Egypt. Because remember, the plagues or the curses and the woes are covenant curses. So locusts is in conjunction with the eighth plague against Egypt uh, that's recorded in Exodus chapter ten. Also, locusts are used in a as as a symbol of armies that God would use, and it's described in Joel. We can turn there in a moment. In Joel Joel chapter two verses one through eleven. God speaks of. The nations that he will raise up against Israel because of their failure to keep his law. So, again, covenant curses and the enemies that he will use are described as locusts. So, let's look there just for a moment. In Joel chapter 2, and we'll look at verses um, 1 through 11. well chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 and it says uh, blow a trumpet in Zion sound an alarm on my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming it is near a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness there is spread Upon the mountains a great and powerful people Their like has never, uh, has never been before Nor will be again after them Through the years of all the generations Fire devouring before them And behind them a flame burns The land is like the garden of Eden before them But behind them desolate wilderness A desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them their appearance is like the arm, the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, um, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap up on, or they leap on top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the subtle uh, the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, uh, before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge the soldiers, they scale the wall, they march each on his own way, uh each in his own way, and they do not swerve from their paths. Uh, they do not jostle with one another, each marches in his path, they burst through the the weapons and and are not uh and are not halted. They leap upon the city uh the walls uh, they run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses and they enter through the windows like a thief, and so they are described in you know in the same way that these locusts that are being described coming from the pit um, are they're they're coming as an army, and they're described in those terms that are and and again this uh, the, the terms are in, indicated as a judgment. So these locusts that are released, that come up like a a mighty army similar to what's being described in Joel but at the same time they are described as locusts and this is the day of the locusts it's not actual locusts that's the concern here but remember where they have been released from the bottomless pit and the bottomless pit described elsewhere as being held in chains it speaks of those fallen angels and so What's really being described is Satan will unleash within the earth fallen angels, demonic or wicked angels, demons. So there's an increase of demons and, um, that are present in the earth. And these are used as a covenant curse uh, against the enemies of God. Now notice again in verses 4 through 6 that they are aimed at those who are not sealed by God. And let me just read those verses again. In verses 4 through 6, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their heads. And then it goes on to say that they will seek death but they will not be able to find it. So in the first place, with the sound of the fifth trumpet, there is the woe of Satan being released from the bottomless pit, and I think that's a metaphoric term also, wherever Satan, the whole point is that Satan exists, but he's confined in his activity, and he will be given more leeway And he will also be given authority over other fallen angels. And they will be directed towards a third of those who are um, not according to the, or who are not, whose names have not been sealed. So this isn't even going to affect all, but only a third uh, of those who have, have not been sealed with the name of God. Which brings us to a third thing. We're not given the details of the nature of their torment. We're not told how. Now, what we'll see in the next one is, I think, more more clear direction in terms of how the demonic activity will manifest itself. But here, it simply says that they will cause those who are tormented to seek death. But they won't be able to find it. So it's not something necessarily physical that is the first that is the actual attack of the demons, but it causes such despair, it causes such anguish upon whom this demonic activity manifests itself that they will seek death, but they won't be able to find it. Here's the fifth thing. Or the fourth, uh, this targeted demonic torment is similar to what Paul describes in Romans chapter one verses twenty eight and twenty nine Let's look at that passage and we'll we're familiar with it. Um, but we usually see it in a, in a slightly different context. in Romans chapter one. And we'll begin in verse 28. Look at verses 28 and 29. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, and they are gossips. So I would say that whatever this torment is, it is a torment primarily at the level of the soul. And while there may be physical responses and uh outbreakings. Primarily, it's the result of God hardening, again going back to the imagery or the language of the Exodus and recorded in the book of Exodus, where God hardened Pharaoh's heart and the point of him hardening the heart is not that he put anything in Pharaoh that wasn't already there, but he didn't let him change. He, he, he seared him. And when you sear a piece of meat, you know, if, you, if you're a cook, if you sear a piece of meat, what you're doing is you're hardening it on the outside. And you only sear it so that if it's a steak, you sear both sides of the steak so that it, it becomes hardened a little bit, but it's not cooked on the inside yet. And the searing allows the juices of the steak to remain trapped in the steak. And so with this, this hardening of heart that Paul describes in Romans, is God not allowing them to change from what they were? And if we see this in conjunction with the, uh, the demons that he allows to torment them, he simply lets them remain what they are and become of more, more of what they are. And so they're not even under They're they're not even aware that they are under the influence of 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 demons. Another place, and we've addressed this before, where we see this slight reference to uh, the influence of demons among in in, in, uh, fallen among fallen humanity in Ephesians chapter two, uh, beginning in verse. We'll read verses one through three. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So what Paul is describing in Ephesians 2 is the natural state of unbelievers. And I think what's part of what's being described in Revelation 9 with the fifth trumpet and the greater influence of Satan in the world is a greater manifestation of that which is natural to us. So a greater influence than description. Uh, Ephesians 2 describes the demonic influence on the fallen mind. We're not aware of it, but this is the demonic influence on fallen humanity. And so it seems to me that what is being described, therefore, with this particular woe, this particular curse of God on humanity, is God allowing more demonic influence. So we don't have to necessarily look for strange voices and you don't have to necessarily look for spectacular things. There's not going to be stuff flying around. No, I think it's whatever, whatever it is that drives or whatever, to whatever degree Satan and demons influence the thought patterns and the passions of fallen humanity, it will become greater. And I think you could probably chart that and say we, we see an increasing of it. Um, yeah, but in any minute, let's, that brings us to a fifth thing. The fact that God's, that the people of God are exempt from this direct attack by Satan and these demons does not mean we will not be impacted by it. In other words, we know that we are, in, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We know that we are sealed by the name of God. But if there is a greater influence on the thinking and the passions of fallen humanity by demons, then they are going to act out of that influence. So we may experience, and I think we have and will continue to experience the impact of living amongst people whose agenda and, and, and actions are shaped by the forces of evil. It's not, I don't mean this in the way that uh, you might read it in a spiritual uh, action novel like, you know, this present darkness or anything like that. But if evil is the basis it's if uh, satanic influence is the basis of our fallen thinking in general, we don't see you know this the supernatural things in the way you know in before we were fallen we didn't necessarily experience demonic activity as you would in a thriller uh, but it simply means that we are doing the agenda we, we are operating according to Our own fallen flesh and that's what Satan wants us to continue to do so in this era of greater influence it simply means man will be more mannish as one preacher would put it uh, that we he will be more of himself he will be more bold Um, and 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 so some things uh, we, we see even the transition over the years that we've really lost the ability to blush so some things that we, it's, it's not that, that humans um, do more things or different things than we've done in the past in our fallenness, but we've become bolder with it. And one of the reasons that uh, I think we've become bolder in sin is because we, it's, it's almost culturally and especially with, um, with those who are outside of Christ, and this is what we're always guarding against, we have given way to our passions. And so however that's manifest, not only in, uh, it's, it's manifest in, in just brazenness. There are things that we used to be ashamed of that we're not ashamed of anymore. And um, so we, we will see more of that. And, and so I think we will be impacted because the influence, the satanic influence and the demonic influence at, at, uh, at play in the world, it's not just a religious thing. It's going to be seen in, in uh, people just living out loud. And so we will be impacted by actions and decisions that are made by people who are driven by satanic influences to be more of themselves. So they will not necessarily, they're not going to be in, in cahoots saying, hey, we, we worship Satan. Obviously there will be your Satan worshipers. It's not a matter of people consciously giving in to demons. They will just be more of what they are. They will, God has given them over to a a debased mind having seared their consciences so they will continue to be and do what they are and they will have greater influence from satanic forces. And even though uh, this is what, uh, this is designated for those who are not sealed with the name of God, Because we are on the earth The people of God will be affected by these things We will not be uh, indwelt uh, By the same satanic uh, forces But we will have to deal with it I think this is part of what Paul is addressing later in Ephesians When he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood But we're actually fighting against principalities And spirits And you're speaking of spiritual warfare Um, So therefore The first Of the three wolves is in conjunction with the fifth trumpet. And the fifth trumpet is the unleashing of Satan and a greater influence of Satan and demons in the world Uh, among those who are unbelievers, who are not sealed with the name of God. It will drive them to torment, or they will be tormented, I should say. They will it will drive them to despair to the point where they desire to die but they will not be able to die. Uh, we will pick up next week with the, uh, with the sixth trumpet and the second woe. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you again for your word. We thank you for the reminder of your grace towards your people, uh, and we are mindful of the fact that we live in difficult times but we are still under your care. Strengthen us so that we would be able to be sources of strength and comfort to others. We pray for our local assembly. You know our needs, you know our names, and we pray your mercies upon uh, all of those who are within our fellowship, as well as uh, every church where the gospel is clearly and properly preached. Continue to strengthen your people uh, for their own good and for your glory. We do again thank you for your word and the sufficiency of it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.